Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Gore is joined by Drs. Amy Justice and Tamar Taddy for a conversation about liver cancer in an aging population. Dr. Justice is Professor of Medicine and General Medicine and of Public Health and Health Policy at the Yale School of Public Health. And Dr. Taddy is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Digestive Diseases at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Gore is Director of Hematologic Malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Could you both just tell me a little bit about what it is you do? You sounds like you're both here on the Yale campus, but you're out at the VA or something. What's going on here? So um, I'm a hepatologist and uh, liver doctor. I'm a liver doctor, yeah. <laughs> and I practice mostly at the VA. Um, I do see patients at Yale, but the core of my practice is at the VA. Okay. Um, dealing mostly with veterans who have liver disease, and specifically veterans with end-stage liver disease and liver cancer. So end-stage liver disease—that's like cirrhosis, or correct? Uh huh. Gotcha. And uh, I was the section chief of general medicine at the VA for about 10 years. I have since stopped doing that and do research almost full-time, including mentoring. I, I work with Tamar, among other people. Uh, and I've been running the Veterans Aging Cohort Study for almost 20 years. Okay. So this Veteran Aging Cohort Study, can you tell me about it? I, I don't really know anything about it. Sure. So the VA has an electronic medical record system that is national. And the Veterans Aging Cohort Study is one of the first large-scale cohort studies, observational studies of people living with and without HIV infection who are veterans that's nationwide. We have over 50,000 veterans with HIV in the study matched two to one for people who do not have HIV. So we have 150,000 people in the study. So two people who don't for one that does? Yes. Okay, got it. So that we can understand to what extent is it HIV that drives aging phenomenon that people are having? To what extent is it comorbidity, other conditions that people have as they get older? And what can we do about it to improve aging for veterans with HIV? Why was the VA uh, particularly interested in studying prospectively veterans with HIV? I mean, I think it sounds like a great thing to do, but uh, it's not the first thing that I would have expected the VA to pick up on? Well, so first of all, the study is funded by the National Institutes of Health and has been for more than 20 years because they realized that the VA electronic record was an incredible reservoir for understanding aging, specifically with HIV. It's one of the oldest medical records, electronic medical records in the United States, right? It is certainly the the oldest national electronic record in the world. And to have 20 years of longitudinal data is really exceptional. What's also very uh, important about it is it's a paperless record. So some electronic records are not completely electronic. There are parts that are electronic and parts that are not. Frequently, inpatient records are electronic and other records not so much. Mm. But in the VA, it's inpatient and outpatient. It's all pharmacy fill data, so we know about what medications people are taking. It's laboratory data, it's pathology data, it's radiology data, it's everything, which makes it an incredibly rich reservoir for studying outcomes among any kinds of health conditions. 
HIV has been a priority both with NIH and at the VA for an extended period of time, and this was an opportunity to really use it as a chance to study complex chronic disease and aging. Mm, that's amazing. Tamara, how, how do you interface with this uh, study? So I actually uh, approached Amy about more than five years ago now because I was interested in studying uh, chronic liver disease in the VA. And since Amy has established the VAX cohort and really understands how to study prospectively um, these cohorts of patients, um, she was incredibly generous with her mentorship and really taught me how to do this. And I applied for a grant and was funded to really look at um, both end-stage liver disease as well as liver cancer in the VA population. So she's been essentially my mentor for the past over five years now. That's great. And so you're interested in the liver issues uh, in regard to HIV or not? Right. So the study agnostic to HIV. Right. So the study that I started was agnostic to HIV. Um, however, it's a cohort that ranges over a period of time, and we took every person diagnosed with liver cancer in the VA over a period of time, and there are many HIV patients within that cohort. Hmm. Um, so that's a study that's uh, been going on for about five years now. If, gotcha. I, if I may. Sure, please. Uh, Aging with HIV is an interesting phenomenon, even if you're not interested in HIV, because people with HIV have immune dysfunction that is more pronounced than people aging without HIV. And is that true even if they're on anti-HIV meds and in good control? Unfortunately, it is. Hmm. Uh, there are residual effects of the virus. They are much less than when people aren't on medication. But there is a constant stimulation of the immune system, which causes depletion of the immune system and inflammation over their lifetime. And how severe that is varies by individuals. But if you're interested in studying cancer or any, any many forms of organ system disease, the process of inflammation, understanding it, and understanding how to intervene on it is a very important question in biomedical research right now. So that people with HIV who are aging with HIV actually provide a very interesting study of that question, especially when you can compare them to similar people without HIV. And that's one of the reasons why, even now that we have antiretroviral therapy, and you might think, oh, the problems of HIV are solved, they're certainly much better than they were. It's a miracle of modern science sure. that we're able to treat HIV. But these people don't have the same life expectancy as people without HIV, mm. and they are more susceptible to cancer, to cardiovascular disease, to liver disease, to kidney disease, to any number of problems than people without HIV. And right now, we think one of the major drivers of that phenomenon is this chronic inflammation and immune dysfunction that they experience. You know, uh, obviously, in the, uh, in the media, uh, they would have many people, including physicians who are not intimately involved with HIV care, uh, not believe that it was a solved problem, but that uh, the diagnosis of HIV, it's now a chronic illness. And, and of course, there's all the speculation that this has led to a you know, recurrence in uh, you know, unsafe sexual practices among at-risk groups because it's just not seen as such a big deal as when some of us were, uh, you know, training uh, in coming of age as physicians when we didn't yet know what was causing this uh, debacle, this crisis. Right. Right? No, it's, uh, it's Those of us who true. lived with it never want to see that happening again. So it's really interesting to hear about these downstream effects that I guess we were all hoping 
you know, wouldn't happen. Yeah. So, I mean, when you talk about viruses in general, I mean, HIV, we've had a perspective of decades now. But I still think the natural history of HIV is unfolding in front of us. And we can actually look at something like hepatitis C, which in many ways, a lot of the infectious disease doctors look at liver doctors and chuckle because, you know, we struggled for so long to come up with medications. Now we actually have very effective medications to treat hepatitis C. Right. Um, but that whole process is one in which the natural history unfolds in front of you because you're taking a virus which you can now cure in the case of hep C. HIV is a virus that can be suppressed. Um, but there's clearly synergy between these viruses because patients with HIV tend to have liver fibrosis occurring at a much accelerated rate if they're exposed to hepatitis C. Um, so they develop cancer, and they develop cancer oftentimes in the absence of cirrhosis, which is different from the sort of non-HIV patient who develops hepatitis C, has a latency period to cirrhosis, and then develops their liver cancer. So clearly there's a difference in that host with HIV and hep C. Hmm. Well, so maybe we should take a step back and uh, talk a little bit about who is at risk for liver cancer. Uh, you alluded to that a little bit and how this is playing out again in, in these populations. So in the West, um, cirrhosis underlies liver cancer in really more than 85% of cases. So anybody with cirrhosis is at risk for liver cancer. Would I know if I had cirrhosis? You wouldn't. And that's a problem. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, no. Right. So the, the issue with the liver, it's a very noble, humble organ, lives right under your right rib cage and does an awful lot of things that you are completely not cognizant of on a daily basis. I like my liver. Yes. I take it every day. <laughs> right. You're not done with it yet. <laughs> so the average American doesn't know where their liver is and doesn't know what their liver does. And in fact, the liver can function normally until about 60% of it is not functional anymore. And then mm -hmm. somewhere around that 60 to 70% decline in liver function, you will begin to develop symptoms. But by that time, you probably already have cirrhosis. Mm. So unless your doctor suspects you may have a liver problem or unless you have abnormal liver enzymes, for example, on testing, rarely will you come to the attention of a specialist. And some people actually have totally normal liver enzymes and still have cirrhosis. Mm. So by the time they get to somebody like me, oftentimes it's too late and then it's a question of managing their cirrhosis. Um, cirrhosis can be managed for years and people can feel pretty well, especially if the cause of the cirrhosis is something that can be cured, like alcoholism, which is probably the number one reason for developing cirrhosis in the U.S., or something like hepatitis C, which now we can cure. And when you can arrest the scarring of the liver, even when you have cirrhosis, you won't develop the what we call sequela or end-stage phenomenon of liver disease. But if you continue to damage the liver, that's when you develop things that can actually you know, lead to liver transplantation or to death. And even in the absence of developing those end-stage phenomena, you can develop cancer at any time once you have cirrhosis. In the East, so in the Far East in Asia, cirrhosis is not necessarily a precursor to liver cancer. Oftentimes people will develop cancer in the setting of hepatitis B. And in places like Africa, you can develop cancer actually very early from the synergy of hepatitis B, which is often acquired at birth, uh, in addition to exposure to aflatoxin, which is just a function of not being able to store grain in cool environments. Oh, wow. Complicated. Very. Yeah. Well, so 
one of the things that, or one of the arguments that we made in the grant that we were able to get from National Cancer Institute to study liver cancer in people with and without HIV was not only this point about inflammation and how inflammation plays into cancer risk, especially for hepatocellular cancer, but this observation that cirrhosis is not always present in cancer, in in hepatocellular cancer, but frequently is, especially with hep C infection. And to a larger extent, being able to understand what the mechanisms are that connect viral infections like chronic viral infections like hepatitis C, hepatitis B, HIV, to cirrhosis and liver cancer is a really important question. Because if we can intervene on that process, even if we can't always cure the viral infection, as in the case of HIV, we may be able to prevent some of the sequelae. And that's what we've been focusing on. Now, in in the liver cancers that arise in HIV-carrying patients, is the HIV part of the liver cancer? Does the liver cancer have the HIV DNA? Do we know that? So we know that people with HIV have a higher risk of liver cancer even after you adjust for hepatitis C co-infection. They also have a higher risk of cirrhosis given hepatitis C co-infection. So everything is accelerated for them in terms of liver cancer. Why that is, we're still trying to understand. In initial observations, it also appeared, as uh, Tamar was saying a little bit earlier, that people who are HIV co-infected and hepatitis C do not always have cirrhosis before they develop liver cancer, Mm. which is intriguing. Why is that the case? What's happening that causes individuals to go straight to cancer? Well, I'm going to ask you to speculate on that after our break, but right now we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about liver cancer and the Veterans Aging Cohort Study with Drs. Amy Justice and Tamar Taddy. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk for a familial or hereditary cancer receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. The Smilo Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program is comprised of an interdisciplinary team that includes geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together with the goal of providing cancer risk assessment and taking steps to prevent the development of cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Drs. Amy Justice and Tamar Taddy, and we are discussing the Veterans Aging Cohort Study in Liver Cancer. Amy, uh, before the break, you were telling me about um, this um, phenomenon of uh, development of uh, liver cancer in HIV-positive patients or HIV-bearing patients uh, without the development of cirrhosis, and you, you were wondering like why that would be. Well, 
that was the question that we posed to the National Cancer Institute. Did uh, you figure it out yet? Well, we're working on it. Uh, uh-huh. So the study that we're, we're <laughs> conducting together right now is a study that is built off of the Veterans Aging Cohort Study. In other words, we use all the data that we've already collected on this 150,000 folk across the country with and without HIV. But we can identify who has had pathological biopsies of their liver that hopefully get both the parenchyma, which is the the non-cancer tissue, and the cancer tissue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're lining up two pathologists to read those specimens in a standardized way independently to make sure that they agree so that we can compare very directly what the appearance of the tumors are and what the parenchyma appears to be and whether or not there is or is not as much cirrhosis in the HIV-infected individuals. Because first of all, it's not even clear that this is a real phenomenon. We want to make sure, first of all, that it's real. And then try to understand it from a more pathologic perspective with special stains, et cetera. And Tamar has been essential in helping us set up that study. Presumably, the pathologists don't know which patient is HIV-positive. They're blinded to the HIV stains. Do you have any hypotheses, or you're just going to see what falls out? I have lots of hypotheses. (laughs) Um, So I I think it's important to understand certain things about liver cancer that most people don't don't really understand at face value, which is what makes this study very important. The first is that only about 50% or less folk who are diagnosed with liver cancer actually ever get a biopsy. And, you know, oncologists find this to be completely bizarre. I was going to say, that's extraordinary. Right. So how can you tell a person they have cancer without tissue, right? So liver cancer is the only solid organ malignancy that you can actually render a diagnosis based on imaging alone. And it's because it has a very characteristic appearance. And so if you have the right host, a person with cirrhosis and, and, and a cancer that enhances appropriately, you can call it liver cancer. And this is done all over the U.S. and the world all the time. And the problem is is that we don't have enough tissue as a result of that, right? It's a study, you mean. Exactly. And so in HIV patients and in some patients who have early cirrhosis that may not look like cirrhosis on imaging, when we aren't sure if they have an underlying diagnosis of cirrhosis, we will do a biopsy because Mm. we really want to confirm that it is liver cancer. Likewise, if perhaps the patient has cirrhosis but the cancer doesn't enhance exactly as we would expect on imaging, we would do a biopsy. So we do have guidelines for when we should biopsy these people, and yet we still have a dearth of tissue out there to really examine under the microscope. So this study really takes a a group of biopsies, and in a blinded fashion, we're able to really characterize the morphology of these liver cancers and look at the background tissue when there is background tissue. We're getting a bevy of specimens that are you know, either resection specimens when we have a lot of tissue and we can really examine the background, the interface of the background with the tumor and the tumor itself. And we also have biopsy specimens, which are more challenging, but we've really tried to cast as wide a net possible so we can see as many different types of you know, tumors as, you know, as we can and in what milieu they arise. So we're looking at the tumor interface with the background uh, as well as the tumor itself. And liver cancer also morphologically takes on many different patterns, so much so that many pathologists kind of wonder if we're not lumping a bunch of cancers together. Um, so that's another question is, does the cancer morphologically look different in the HIV-positive patient versus the non-HIV patient? And you know, some people say, well, you know, morphology, what does it really tell you? 
but it really can tell you a lot. Yeah, no, I, I don't question that because I find that in my field for sure that the more we understand about the genetics of certain leukemias, um, I realize that the uh, that at least in certain kinds, the morphology really integrates, how it looks has integrated the genetic material, uh, the genetic information, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the pathologists can see that this is a worse something, which is borne out by the genetics. On the other hand, it's, it's really nice for us to have the genetics. Right. Uh-huh. So- Speaking of genetics, um, the VA is also conducting a very large study called the Million Veteran Program, where they have enrolled now over half a million veterans, and they're hoping to get to a million, who have given permission for full access to their electronic medical record data and given a DNA specimen. Hmm. Uh, And we are hoping down the road to be able to link our study with that study so that we would both have... Uh, the genetics of the individual and the genetics of the tumor. Right, because um, you're talking the million vet thing is for their uh, their germline, as yes, we say, their, or their, their their inherited DNA, right? Correct. Uh-huh. Are you actually going to be able to get um, DNA from these pathology specimens from the liver cancers to study? Down the road, we're hoping to do that. It'll require but more we money, do, probably. Well, it will require two things. It will require more money and more permissions. Yes, so I'm we sure. initially only have asked for permission to study this tissue morphologically. the way they look. Right. And the VA wants to be very, very careful to protect patients sure. uh, in terms of their privacy so that the first step, we have to walk before we run. Our first step is to, to get these specimens to describe the morphology and to demonstrate that there is an adequate scientific question to justify further exploration and then go back to the IRB and get permission, we hope, eventually to do DNA studies. Right now, we don't have that permission. The IRB is the ethics board. Correct. Gotcha. Uh, how many patients are we talking about? I mean, how many cases of liver cancer are you studying? We currently have over 40, and our goal is to get 300. I see. Um, so this is a uh, not unimaginable uh, task. No. It's an imaginable task. Yes. I mean, we're not talking about 5,000 or... No. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, But because this is nested within the larger Veterans Aging Cohort Study, all the issues that Tamar was talking about, about who gets biopsies and who doesn't get biopsies, we will be able to see who we got the biopsies on and whether or not the people who didn't get biopsies were much more likely to have documented cirrhosis, for Mm -hmm. example, and adjust for that in the analysis so that we can have a less biased view, even interpreting the pathology specimens that we get. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And these specimens aren't all coming from West Haven, right? They're coming oh, no. from VAs all over the United States. And, and I, are there VAs elsewhere? Well, there, there are... Army bases or anything? Uh, no? we, we don't include Guam or something like that. Okay. But actually, Puerto Rico is one of the sites. Gotcha. So th- this sounds, I mean, really, even to get 300 samples identified and shipped from all over, it's, it's really major organizational task. Yes, it is. is. We meet weekly. (laughs) I guess. Wow. And do you find that most of the centers are happy to cooperate? Well, so I think most of the centers are happy to cooperate. I mean, I think if you think about sort of the nature of this type of research, you're asking a pathologist 
at a center far away to pull blocks of tissue to identify the most, you know, the most representative block to cut slides, you know, if, if they want to cut them or to send us the block. It's work. Right. So we've tried to make it as easy as possible for the pathologist. So we send them a packet. We send them the specimens that we've identified. There's not a lot of legwork that they have to do, but there's still the legwork involved in pulling the cases, examining them, sending a block, et cetera. So, yes, we are really relying on the goodwill of, of folks at other VAs, but I have to say the VA is a phenomenal place to do research where people really are aligned behind the singular, you know, mission, which is to help care for the veteran and to improve their health over time, and research is a big part of that. And this type of research usually leads to very collaborative groups so that pathologists are saying, wow, this is a neat study. You know, can we come to your, you know, yearly meeting? Can we, you know, work with you on this abstract? So I think the whole nature of this type of research lends itself to developing collaborative networks. And research has to be collaborative these days. Yeah. Um, you know, no one person can have the expertise to answer all of these questions. Um, so yes, they're very helpful and very interested, and we have a phenomenal team. And you know, in, in large part due to Amy's already phenomenal organization, but just the ability to be positive and, and as she says, like water on a rock, get these <laughs> things done. Nice. So now, are most of the veterans that are being studied are they mostly Vietnam veterans? Or are we going back even into a Korean War and, and World War II? We will include. Uh, anyone who's in the study who has hepatocellular cancer. Uh, and we have some 80-year-olds in the study and 90-year-olds, so some of those are not Vietnam veterans. <laughs> I see. And and I guess the causes of cirrhosis and cancer varies like anywhere in any other population. There's probably a fair amount of alcoholism, I, I'm guessing? There is. Uh, we have The VA is very careful about collecting data on alcohol consumption, so we actually have very good measures of alcohol consumption. It's one of the reasons that NIAAA, which is the Alcohol Institute at NIH, has been one of my major funders ah, over the there years. We go. So we've spent a lot of time studying alcohol and actually other substances as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we probably have a better handle on that exposure than many other cohort studies might have. Mm -hmm. Part of what's exciting about this study from my perspective as an epidemiologist is this is really one of the first studies to capitalize on the electronic medical record as a way of building a cohort. Uh, if you think about the famous cohorts before, Framingham, for sure. example, they cost the taxpayer an incredible amount of money because you had to go out, recruit those patients, do physical exams, follow them all, this stuff, all those get the years. lab tests, follow them. If instead we can use our networks of hospitals and clinics to do efficient observational work, we can save the taxpayer a great deal of money and have clinically relevant observations that can directly be fed back in terms of clinical management. And that's part of the model that the VA has been trying to build over the last 20 years, and I think pretty effectively. Did they build the electronic medical record in the VA system uh, to be particularly uh, research-friendly because I know, for example, uh, a well-known electronic medical <laughs> record with which I'm familiar with in two institutions now uh, does is not research-friendly. Uh, so doing this kind of work in, in that particular system, and I won't name it, um, is challenging. Let's put it that way. So the VA, one of the major benefits the VA has is that they implemented the paperless medical record 20 years ago. Right. So they've been able to learn over time how to make it more user-friendly, both for clinical management 
and for research. Uh, initially, it was called the decentralized uh, be because while every VA in the country had to adopt it, how they named the data fields mm -hmm. was somewhat up to them. That sounds chaotic. Yes. Now, over the years, that's become much more standardized. So now we have very standardized information about medications, about laboratories, and, and standard even note fields, pharmacy data, et cetera, so that we can now analyze this data nationwide very effectively. And it's really the only system. You know, people talk about Kaiser, but Kaiser, while it is a national system, their data is is regional, not national. So Kaiser Northern California, Kaiser Southern California, et cetera. The VA has a national EHR. We pull data nationally on these people. So if someone's seen in Florida half the year and Connecticut the other half of the year, we have both sets of data to be able to look at, which is helpful for patient care, certainly, I can say as a primary care doctor, but also extremely helpful for research. What percentage of the VA population now is female? About 25% of returning veterans are yeah, female. Now, now, in this age group, yeah. In this age group, it depends on which age group you're talking about. Right, so you've, you've got that issue still to deal with, that it's not yet fully representative of our Absolutely population. true, but for example, in the Veterans Agent Cohort Study, which is focused on HIV, right? we have as many women in that study as the women's study focused on women with HIV have, because it's such a big sample. So the percentage is small, but the absolute numbers of women actually is not small. We have over a thousand women in the study. Dr. Amy Justice is a professor of medicine in general medicine and of public health and health policy at the Yale School of Public Health. And Dr. Tamar Taddy is an associate professor of medicine and digestive diseases at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.